Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the petri dish that is Stoneville, Mississippi. Tom, is that an accurate assessment? Wildly accurate, especially after this weekend and everything. I mean, it's wildly humid in this room. Dude, you ought to go to our building. Yeah. It's at least 87 degrees in our building. Well, that's because they turn the air conditioning off on the weekends. It's a stellar idea. You're never supposed to do that. It doesn't run as efficiently when you do that. Tom is stressed. Trey Price is on the phone with us. Trey sounded stressed. I, on the other hand. Yeah. Well, we could, we could back <laughs> that up at the state. Cruising the, to the end. Jason's just rocking along right now, man. The weed scientists are done. Layby's taking taking place. And, you know, we still get the calls as plant pathologists. Well, y'all, y'all ought to be like winding down for the season like no no this is no. go time for the plant pathologist and then it's go time from like now until me i don't know october <laughs> i was extremely grateful for being a weed scientist thursday and friday afternoon last week when it was 93 and a 117 percent humidity i know that's not possible but that's what it felt like i went and sprayed plots in tyvek friday evening <laughs> So, <laughs> how how dumb am I? Glutton for punishment, we are. Yes, I, I've I've been hot, really hot, several times over my career, and one of the hottest times I I can remember is I was spraying plots first week of July down in Mowater, Louisiana, and it was narrow row soybeans, and it was for aerial blight. Started cramping up on the way home, and had to stop at Albertsons and Alexandria and get bananas and pickle juice and all that stuff. But that was fun. 38 bottles of Gatorade. Yeah. Heat leads me to my question, Tom. I'm going to pose this one to you. Okay. In July, August, when you're doing the things that you do, do you change socks or do you not? Some days I do. Some days I don't. If I'm rolling through a rice paddy, inevitably the pair of lacrosse boots I have rumbling around the backseat of my truck are <laughs> probably have a hole in them or dry rotted and I just keep wearing them gutted out and then just change socks at that point I used to always carry an extra pair of socks now I don't does that mean I'm less serious about it now or I have better boots I don't know I carry an extra set of clothes and I have two beach towels in the truck right now Trey you change socks or not I do if I need to. I've actually stopped more times than I can count it. Dollar General just bought a pack of socks if I forgot them. I've had them on the windshield wipers before trying to dry while I was doing something else <laughs> just so they weren't funky in the truck. Not like an additional odor in there would, would change the climate inside the vehicle. We've rolled them up in the windows before we drive down the highway and you know, let them flap outside. That's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. That dries them up. Get some strange looks, but they dry out pretty quick. Sorry, I get plenty of strange looks anyways. When I get out and the towel's wrapped around me like a toga. <laughs> my, <laughs> my wisdom and probably the end of my contribution to this particular podcast episode, Tom, is take care of your feet. Yeah, I do everything I can to do that. Living, breathing proof over here. So <laughs> Yeah, right. After having his like chopped apart, filleted like a fish and Yeah, put back together mostly. Ground with a Dremel tool down to something that's a little smaller than what it was before and then glued back together. Added most of the parts back and then added some extra parts that weren't there before. So. That was one of those situations where they had additional parts that didn't go back in. <laughs> 
let's progress into agricultural content and stay off of Jason's medical challenges. Yeah, so Jason and I talked last week about talking a little bit about aerial blight and, and being is that this is the season, and I know Trey's getting telephone calls about aerial blight, and I'm getting calls about aerial blight. So we really need to talk about, A, what it is, and B, how we manage it, C, when it's not an issue. Aerial blight's not one that I've heard y'all talk about often over the last few years. It's one of the ones that I think about because I've always worked in rice and aerial blight, sheath blight. But this is not one that y'all talk about routinely throughout the winter. So what makes this year unique that aerial blight is more of a challenge than it has been in other recent years? High humidity and rainfall. Yeah. With Jason's question, that's an interesting one because it's not typically a disease we run across in the Mississippi Delta. And And why is that? Because that fungus that causes it, and you can name it, it's it, Rhizoctonia solani. So, I mean, I've heard you say oftentimes, I mean, that's basically in every scoop of soil that you might pick up more than likely. The bigger field sizes in the Mississippi Delta and greater row spacing, I think, contribute to the fact that we don't run across it as much. You get a lot more airflow across these fields. We don't trap humidity in fields like we do when you get south of I-20. Okay. Or east Mississippi in the hills. And I suspect it's similar, fairly similar, but maybe a little different in Louisiana. I mean, I'll, I'll let Trey say why, where he thinks they have it geographically. South Louisiana, for sure, in rice country, it's a, it's an annual issue because you have the rice soybean rotations. The further north you move, the production systems kind of change a little bit, and you have, like you said, wider roads. So, But once the canopy laps, anywhere, Alexandria, in that area, central Louisiana, south Louisiana, you're going to it's, it's an annual issue for us just because of the, the high humidity and the rainfall. Further south you go, you typically more rainfall you get. In the northeast part of the state, we plant at least half the soybeans in the state in this region. Uh, but I get calls on it every year here because we've got rice soybean rotations here too. You know, it's around. It's just it's not as prevalent in the northeast part of the state as it is in central and south Louisiana. I've actually seen it on 40-inch uh, rows and soybeans before that have not lapped yet. And you have the right weather conditions, and it can happen that way. It's a little, little tricky diagnosing in that situation if you don't get the typical matted leaves and and the white mycelial growth. It looks a lot like a chemical burn at that point. Yeah, and and Trey hit the nail on the head with that statement. Usually, when I'm talking to folks about it in Mississippi or anywhere, it's a it's easiest to identify and diagnose that disease early in the morning when they're still dew present because you get the leaves matting together and you'll see the fungal webbing, which I mean, they did a decent job as plant pathologists actually calling it aerial web light because it does look like a web, but you got to catch it at the right point in time. You get later in the day and, and when the dew burns off and the sun's high in the sky and you'll just have strange lesions on leaves that you won't necessarily know what it is. And it's another one of those issues that I usually impress upon folks dig in the canopy Make sure you part the canopy back and look in the canopy because you can drive by a field and just look across the top of it and go, man, that's the prettiest field of soybeans I've ever seen. There's nothing wrong with it. Dig in the canopy and all of a sudden it's like, holy mackerel, there's not a single pod on any of these plants. Where'd they go? Yep. They were eaten by that fungus. Yeah. That's essentially what it does. It just consumes the whole plant. Eventually in that situation, it will crawl out of the top. It's a kind of a management nightmare because when you want to, 
you know, apply a fungicide for it and the canopy's already lapsed, it's hard to deliver the product exactly where it needs to go. Yeah, and that, that um, totally leads me to like my other statement slash question. You've probably done the bulk of the recent research just because it's not as it hasn't been as big an issue the last decade in Mississippi. We had one year in particular, it was horrible in East Mississippi. So what class of products have you identified as probably still having some of the best activity on that particular organism and disease, Trey? In central and south Louisiana, we're not recommending the QOIs anymore because we've got QOI fungicide resistance down there for sure. Suspected in some areas up here. On most farms in the northeast part of the state, you can still use QOI fungicides. You, you know, your quadras, quilted cell, things like that. Some of the older chemistries that work pretty good on it, but in South Louisiana, we're recommending the SDHI materials, the Excalia from the C Valent and a Preaxer, BASF, Trilopro from Syngenta, products like that. Even Lucento has activity on that fungus. So we do have some options, which is good. Unfortunately, we don't have as many options in rice with sheep white. So. And I can't remember, somebody asked me about Lucento a few weeks ago, and I don't remember if it's labeled for aerial blight or not. I'd have to check. Yeah, and that was one of those ones I think I talked to the the person about it and thought, hmm, I don't think that one's labeled. And I may need to look in a second if I get Jason asking a question, because at least Jason has experience with it from the rice standpoint. You know what it looks like when it blows out the top of the rice canopy when it's sheath blight. Same fungus, exactly the same fungus. Well, aerial blight, aerial web blight, Sorry, I'm calling it incorrectly, but it's always been on my radar because when I first got out of school, I worked in Crowley, and like Trey said, it's a big deal down there. I used to rate the soybean variety trial for it and really didn't have any trouble doing it, Tom, because it was very obvious, and (laughs) and you could get a weed scientist who was moonlighting as an agronomist rating the variety trial for disease, and, and it'd be easy to do there was obviously a lot of disease pressure there, so it's always kind of been on my radar. Trey, the resistance down there, is that a combination of selection pressure from treatments in rice and soybean, or is that mainly in maybe some continuous rice areas? Because I know there's some of that down there. I'd say both. They apply fungicides to both of those crops every year, no matter what. So it's more of an annual selection pressure. And that you mentioned soybean varieties, but you know the varietal resistance is not well defined for this for this disease, and that's that's one of the things that we've got some younger scientists on campus, and um, in conjunction with our rice pathologists that down there, they're they're working on further defining that that varietal resistance. That you know, there's got to be some resistant varieties out there. There's got to be something out there that has some tolerance. We just have to identify it. The other thing is is that that resistant pathogen population is, it was defined somewhat probably a decade ago, but they're really going to de- define that geographically. And they're also going to look at the, the biology of the, of the fungus with you know, a bunch of different isolates and things like that. So they're working on it down there. You listed off some products with the SDHI. Is that correct? That's right. The SDHI. Yep fungicides. So what about timing of those products? Is it a growth stage or is it in response to scouting? How do you time those treatments? Time to spray it's when you see it. I've known farmers that, that will apply as early as R2 
if they've got it starting and they're doing narrow beams down there. But scouting, in response to scouting for sure. And this is this happens with a lot of different systems. The right conditions for aerial bite are not the right conditions for spraying by ground. You don't get good enough coverage with the, an aerial application. Uh, recommendations for, for management are you need to apply by ground using at least 15 gallons per acre. Billy Moore always impressed upon me, and whenever we did some plot trials in East Mississippi attempting to manage aerial blight, he'd always say, you know, pretty much 15-gallon minimum, 20 gallons would be preferred, 60-plus PSI if possible by that ground applicator so that you can actually move that product as deep into the canopy as possible because even though this is an aerial disease, the organism survives in residue in the soil and moves up the plant. So you're trying to treat it from the top down, and you want to get product as far into the canopy as possible so that you don't have to make a second application. Because you can make additional applications if it's one of those years whereby the environment doesn't cooperate and basically help you out by shutting that actual disease down. Tom, here in your plots today, even on your sandy ground on the other side of the creek, you're not making a ground application out there. No, no, because I, <laughs> I, I'm not exactly sure how much rain we had over the weekend. I don't necessarily believe what the weather stations told me based on how much standing water there was when I got here yesterday. You know, wait and time it. I mean, you, you have a couple of days after you find it from scouting but you don't want to delay an application a week. You want to get in there as soon after you find it as possible. And, you know, Trey indicated like R2. I know some folks in South Mississippi have made applications prior to that just because they had so much aerial blight in those fields. They wanted to shut it down before it started knocking flowers off the plant. Yeah, it's a good point. Field history is super important it's because the fungus is not going to go anywhere. It survives in the soil for years. If you got it on your farm, you might as well just get ready to deal with it for the rest of the time you're farming. If that is true, is there value in a preventative application? Yeah. Elaborate, Trey. If your farm's got a history of it, the fungus is not it's not going anywhere, and especially if you're in a rice soybean rotation. So if you've got a, a really heavy inoculum load in that soil, and you know you're planting beans in there, and uh, you know you're going to have aerial bites, so you should just Go ahead and plan and budget that application. Get it out when it's preferably before the canopy lapse. That way you can deliver the product by ground with the appropriate water volume, and you'll get you'll be much happier with your results than if you managed it uh, reactively. And so, prior to canopy lapping, growth stage would vary. Exactly, it would be more of a getting the plant or the plant surface exposed to the treatment rather than protecting a specific growth stage. That's right, yep. Another thing came to mind, these drone outfits popping up and down here. I mean, we've got a few few guys that are doing commercial pesticide applications with these with these spray drones, and it kind of makes you wonder if they, if they could get a little better coverage than airplanes. That, that would make a neat project to compare airplanes versus drones versus uh, ground applications. Just something else to do, Tom. You need something else to do? <laughs> no. <laughs> They've worked on that some in the cotton program in start, well, not in the context of fungicides, been more insecticides, but canopy penetration. And I know 
there's a student over there now that's using a drone. He's not comparing it to an aerial application, but he's comparing it to a ground application. See, and I would say I, I agree with Trey's comment. The strange thing is, though, in our areas where we have a rice soybean rotation, we don't tend to have aerial blight in soybeans. So from a historical perspective, something like making preventative applications in some of those areas where you may have had a field with a history of aerial blight in other parts of Mississippi, probably something that should be considered, especially if you're planting narrow row soybeans in a continuous fashion. Y'all educated me on the, the wide open part of it, just big open spaces, not necessarily canopy down the road, but wide open spaces, field to field across the landscape. And I think, Tom, if you think about our rice soybean areas, a lot of that's wide open spaces. The best story I could say, the, the, t- the one time I've seen it really bad in the Delta, and I've seen it, you know, two or three times in a couple of field situations. The worst field situation I saw, somebody planted some narrow row soybeans between two cornfields, and they had the cornfields at Ordy, they were good tall corn. There was no air movement between the two fields, and aerial blight was smoking the little strip of soybeans. And it wasn't a very wide strip, so you could see where you'd shut down all the airflow across the top of the canopy, and all the humidity was just trapping itself over the canopy and allowing aerial blight to move up and down throughout the canopy. Yep. You know, in East Mississippi and the places south of I-20, you see it worst. They're small fields that have trees on three or four sides. And, you know, small, it's a 20, 30, 40-acre field. It's not like a 300-acre delta field that you see or a big block of soybeans where you know there's good airflow across that area. It's places in, like, Hines County that are down in the creek bottom, and they got trees all around the field. Yeah, that's a good point. SDHI inhibitor in response to scouting possibly preventative application depending on field history and circumstances. Is there a growth stage beyond which a fungicide treatment is impractical? R6, R6 and a half, probably R6 and a half with this one, I would think. Billy always impressed upon me R5.7. The problem is, is 5.7 is a little nebulous. Jason's giving me a great look. And <laughs> that may be the first time I've ever heard growth stage R5.7. What in the world well, are you looking forward to find that? <laughs> Billy's mention of that was one of those situations whereby the pod gets a little bit more woody. And it's held onto the plant a little bit better. And I was like, Relative wow, to what? 5.7. I'm not exactly sure that there are very many folks that are out in the field that are going to walk up and down there and go, well, you know, we're right at six, 5.65. I'm not exactly sure we should do anything about it. You know, what I tell folks is five and a half, because in most cases, their five and a half is, is a bit closer to six than, than a true five and a half. Like 50% of the pod filled by the developing kernel. It's probably too hot for me to be that precise with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's right. You're inside enjoying the air conditioning and plugging numbers into the computer while the plant pathologists are out there losing weight. <laughs> Last question related to the fungicide treatment. With a few herbicides, and then you hear the entomologists talk about it with some insecticides, 
and you mentioned scouting, it's much easier to see early in the morning. Is it better to treat it early in the morning when the dew's on? I would say no. I don't know if it makes any difference. That's a legit answer. I, I was just Liberty's the one that always comes to mind with herbicides. There is a distinct difference in the performance at daylight versus mid afternoon. Mm-hmm. accounting for wind and, and different things like that. You know, I've heard Jeff and Don over the years talk about, I couldn't call one of the insecticides off the top of my head, but I've heard them talk about it. So just curious. Well, and I don't think anybody's looked at it that in depth. And more often than not, I think we make most of our fungicide applications when dew is not present, or at least we, in, we intend to make those applications when dew is not present. What else you need to talk about? Just how important of a disease for soybean farmers is this in South Louisiana, Trey? If you could find a soybean variety that would consistently yield 50 bushels to the acre and that's resistant to aerial blight, they'd build a statue in your honor, Mamu. That does sound like heck of an honor. <laughs> They'll name a trash can after me. It'll be a salmon-colored trash can. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to work I was trying to work your pink shirt into the dialogue and you beat me to it. Wow. How I, does the pink shirt work in the sun? Does it does it reflect the sun pretty good or I don't think that far Did ahead. You soak it up or? it just soaks yeah. all the sweat up. In Tom's defense, he did not describe his shirt as pink, he described it as salmon, which I think Oh, well, that's different. Depending on your level of color knowledge, some people would call it pink, some people would call it orange. I probably used to refer to it as coral. Few people would refer to it as salmon because nobody knows what on earth that color is. And they'd probably call it salmon. And in the meantime, we're getting laughed out of Mississippi with this current discussion. We are. (laughs) Any closing thoughts, Trey? Uh, That was pretty much it. I think we hit everything. Yeah, I think so, too. Thank you so much for your time, man. It's always good to talk to you. Always a pleasure. Y'all take care. Good luck the rest of the season. You too, man. Thanks, Trey. See ya. Take care, man. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension. 